0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. As you've been hearing, members of Parliament declared unanimously that they want the government to in turn declare the Proud Boys a terrorist organization. And you've heard a lot about the Proud Boys and the FBI saying that uh, one individual who's a member, high-ranking member of the Proud Boys, who was at the January 6th assault on the Capitol in Washington, the Capitol building in Washington, uh, was found with um, materials, bomb-making materials, and so the FBI is investigating. I'm not sure where the charges have been laid. But let's talk about this with a former high-ranking neo-Nazi white supremacist leader in this country, going to speak to us about everything that's developing on the hate front. He knows better than most, and he's come back entirely, completely from that reality. Tony McAleer is a former neo-Nazi leader. He's the co-founder now of Life After Hate, the organization, and the author of The Cure for Hate. We've talked to Tony before. Tony, thank you very much for taking the time. And before I ask you for your thoughts on the vote in Parliament, who are the Proud Boys?
1: Uh the problem is that they're 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 not your atypical white supremacist organization that uh, that you would think of. Uh the leader, uh, I can't remember his name, he's Afro Cuban. Um, and they claim not to be racist, but they're Western chauvinists. They're very much um into uh masculinity and, and the the Western civilization is the um the greatest civilization in the world. But they're they're really really not much more than uh, sort of an ideological street gang, you know, like a, a fight a political fight club. They, they even have, uh, you know, jumping in like a street gang does, and you have to name uh, breakfast cereals as they punch you in the stomach. It's, I've watched it on video. It's it's sort of outrageous.
0: Okay, uh, so they uh, are. They- they're not the—they're not the organization that you were a part of and you became a leader of. They're not that kind of no. organization.
1: No, but they're—they're they're, they're very violent. They—I mean—they love to show up at uh, demonstrations or counter demonstrations, and they love to to fight with Antifa in Portland and Antifa anywhere. They—they so they are the—they're um, the, the self-described sort of muscle of uh, Trump rallies
0: okay is the, is this whole idea this whole issue of of hate or supporting one aspect of life if i'm not sure you can put it in those terms but for for our conversation purposes is this an expanding reality if, if we were to look at if i were to ask you uh and i will ask you when you were very active in the white supremacy movement um was it a much more compact reality globally than it is today
1: uh yes absolutely absolutely why did, a lot of this is uh, on the left and the right is becoming normalized, right? And and that's what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, when you look at, at the election, 1929 to 1933, there was something like 30 parties in 1929. And by the time you got 1933, the last election, it was basically three or four and it was communist or Nazi. The the sort of middle had, had evaporated. And I think that's a, that's a larger issue is, is what's happening um, to the middle and the extreme polarization in uh, in our society
0: how worried are you today
1: and what you're seeing um i'm I'm not like look the Proud boys are are an issue and and what their what their values are and their beliefs are are they're not canadian values and and I despise uh, the values are they a threat to Canada no but they're um, just like trump not, he's not the issue, he's the symptom, and I think what's going on in society and um I think is a threat that society will t- tear itself apart and I think you know we've allowed ourselves ruled by our sense of outrage and I think if Noam Chomsky were to write another book instead of calling it manufacturing consent, um he would call it manufacturing outrage and i think we i think as a society. Um, addicted to uh, to our sense of outrage, we sort of live there. And everything goes to die, you know eleven on the dial of, of outrage, and, and when we're at that place, we can easily be controlled or manipulated or allow things to happen to our society that we wouldn't uh, from a place of rational thought.
0: Okay, so if I if I ask you beyond uh, the Proud Boys, that they're the subject of the votes in Parliament, but just broad base it beyond them and just look at the, the the hate movement or the extremist movement but let me come back to having said that let me come back to the idea of the vote by canada's mps to they're unanimously calling on the federal government to include the proud boys on a list of terrorist organizations like isis al-qaeda Boko haram hezbollah what do you say
1: uh, i think it's I'm going to say the unpopular thing and say, you know, because it would be very easy to say absolutely they should do it, but I think it's actually a mistake to do it. And, you know, and I have about the definition of what um, terrorism here is in Canada. And it's um, the Canadian section 8301 defines terrorism as uh, any act committed in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause with the intention of intimidating the public with regard to its security including its economic security or compelling a person, a government or a domestic or international organization to do or refrain from doing any act. That's a pretty broad definition. That that defines any group that counter protests or um, has an issue in the interrupt city hall. Or, I mean, that's a very broad definition. And uh, my concern is when they stretch the definition to go beyond the obvious thing, like, uh, you know the IRA or ISIS or something like that to capture groups that are uh, that are uh, um, that <clears throat> that are not liked that are hated by society. We sort of who else are we going to catch up in that in that net? If the government were to change to a different government, um, who might that looser definition be used on? And I think it's a very dangerous precedent to set. The two white supremacist groups that they've already put on the list. They committed bombings in the UK. They deserve to be on the list. So it's it's not that I'm saying that that um extremist superior violence in the name of white supremacy shouldn't be on that list. Um I'm just not sure that that Proud Boys meet that meet that definition and, and I'm afraid of what happens as the unintended consequences of such an overreach?
0: Let's look at this more broad based, just beyond the Proud Boys. Look at the, the this, this extremist movement as it grows uh, internationally. What's the attraction, and how does the recruiting take place? Is it passive because of online searches, or active through in person recruiting, or a combination of the two?
1: I think it's I think it's all of the above, and I, I sort of think there's two sort of elements at play so th- those that, that want to get involved in um and I'll, I'll talk about the violent far right those are that are that want to be street brawlers or you know join paramilitary type organizations um often we find with those people there's um there's an underlying trauma that that is at the core of them growing these very antisocial um ideas talk- about in the book for the general more there, there is a sense um you know i don't <clears throat> there's a and that grievance may be may be rooted in a in a misplaced sense of entitlement but i think there's a feeling of love from them and i think um trump is a symptom of that exit is a, a symptom i think um you know as we see the rise of populism uh, particularly among the West, I think it's symptomatic of, of not quite working the same way that it that it once. And I think populism um, is an, an essential part to democracy. In that populism is like the check engine light coming on in your car. You can ignore it and uh, and drive on until you uh, to something wrong and, and address it. And populism never comes up with the right answer, but it often asks the right questions. And there, there's no shortage of political actors who will manipulate and use those, that sense of grief, to political power.
0: Yeah, we're, we're just having some trouble with this signal, but we'll do the best we can with it. So you know, like we keep saying this every weekend, we put two men on the moon in 1969, and we can't even get there. Phones to work properly, but we'll we'll manage. Tony, um, so you got out of the movement, you you left, and I know you told us in our first conversation, you have children, and your children played a major part in your decision making. So when you wrote Life After, or at least uh, the Cure for Hate, and you founded the organization Life After Hate was that something that was extremely difficult for you to, to break away from what had been a significant part of your life and your philosophy or was it by the time you made the decision a fairly simple thing to do
1: no it's, it, it's difficult because what these what these groups do is as they, they take advantage of these vulnerabilities for me it was a sense finding a sense of purpose a sense of meaning i got brotherhood and acceptance and i got, and, and a sense of power that i you know from when i felt powerless attention when i felt invisible and acceptance when i felt unlovable and sort of those are the the vulnerabilities they exploit. and there's all kinds of people that will exploit those those vulnerabilities in, in young people um, the hard part in leaving is it becomes what you believe when identity and ideology are intertwined, it's it's very you can't challenge a person's ideology in any way without challenging their identity and ego defense mechanisms kick in. So, for, it's difficult because you got to leave a social circle behind. You have to go through what I call the void, whether you have no friends, you have no social circle. Um, get to the other, the other, you know, a number of years, children. So I wasn't completely. In that respect, yeah, um, they really. Yeah, we're, ju- we're just struggling. In the 90s,
0: we- we're just struggling with the phone, but uh, let me let me ask you um, this: in the cure for hate, and what's the core message? Let's assume that we have somebody who, like you, uh, is still a member of one of these organizations, groups, feels they have the social contact and the social contract, if you will feels they belong, but don't want to be part of it anymore. What do they do? What's the core message from you to them that they'll read in The Cure for Hate?
1: Don't hate yourself. That there are people that love you. There are. There is a way out. There is people that will help you, help you leave, and to rebuild a new life. And you can learn to love yourself because when you love yourself, you you don't hate other people. I believe the... Um, the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of our own disconnection and dehumanization. And often when I sit down with people, I'll look at them straight in the eye and say, I see you. That's what you did. That's not who you are.
0: How worried are you as you look at society? If you look back to uh, just the events of the last months, and particularly if we look at January the 6th, um how worried are you about us devolving into and you talked about this earlier in our interview when you said in between 1929 and 1933 there was this polarization increased polarization that took place politically and socially how worried are you about our society today say where it'll be 5 or 10 years from now
1: I'm hopeful but I think we we it gets worse before it gets gets better and it's not, uh, I think, as, as individuals, you know, what can I do in this situation? It's, it's up to, to every individual through every action of every moment of every day to to be the change we wish to see. If we want more peace in society, are we being peaceful with our neighbors or the people that irritate us on the street or whatever? And I think we can definitely make the change. As human beings, we have this incredible power to influence people around us, inspire people around us for better or for worse. And I think once people realize that it's within the power of the individual to make this change, and I think that will happen um, but I think we have, uh, we have some darker years yet before, before we put the brakes on this.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you say that you don't necessarily have to be a member of one of these organizations. Um, but if you find yourself, uh, just angry and frustrated constantly, just change your, your own behaviors on a daily basis, and things will, will improve for the better. So The Cure for Hate is your book. The organization is Life After Hate. And, Tony, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us. Uh always learn something from you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Tony McAleer, again, his book is The Cure for Hate, and the organization is Life After Hate. Um, yeah, I, I think if, if you have conversations with people, about where we're headed as a society. Inevitably and invariably, I find that there's some concern that is raised about where we're going to be five or 10 years from now. Well, it's up to us where we're going to be. It's up to us who we are. It's up to us who we become. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.